When the, when the game stands tall, you guys seen that before? Good movie, I'd recommend it. But uh, I think what it gets at is, man, it gets at the heart of kind of what we're going to be talking about today. I was watching that clip and thinking, man, I wonder if any of us have ever uh, been in moments in life where we are despairing, where we are discouraged, where we are disappointed, where things are not working out in our lives the way we expected. And we find ourselves asking the same kinds of questions as what he asked there. Does God care? Does God see me? Does it matter? Why is this kind of thing happening to me? Why is God allowing it? Maybe God doesn't see me or maybe he just doesn't care. I've seen people carry around questions like this and been plagued by questions like that. Sometimes for years, they carry it around like a type of spiritual baggage. It keeps them stuck and unable to move forward in their life, in their relationships, and even with God. I remember one time uh, when we were up in Wisconsin, we did a uh, series at the, the church we started up there called God Questions. We took little boxes and slips of paper and left them all around town in the bars and restaurants, the library and the auto parts store at pizza places, everything. And uh, we had little slips of paper that asked one question. And, and the question was this. It was, if you could ask God one thing and knew he'd shoot straight with you, what would you ask? And I was amazed at the, the, the kinds of questions that we got and the candor that people would write. Uh, uh, and how much it just reflected about their own soul, their own backstory, and even their own disappointments and discouragements uh, in life. I remember there was one I kept in my desk for years. I still have it, this slip of paper. Um, but where somebody said this, they, this is their response. They said, why does God take people who are so needed by their families, by their communities, by their churches, and etc., when there are so many terminally ill people waiting and wanting to die? Why, when someone is in the prime of their life, living lives as God intended, needed as a husband and a father, why would God take them? They said, I've struggled with this, this question. I've struggled to find answers for 20 plus years. I think about it almost every day, and it has robbed me of my faith. Please help, they said. This isn't some abstract question, but it's a painful reality of one person who was living in despair. Sometimes you'll hear stories like this of when, when tragedies come up. I remember hearing uh, the story of a husband one time who lost three generations of women, his mom, his wife, and his daughter in one car wreck. He carried that around with him for, for decades, and for decades he wouldn't go back into church again because he was like, where is God? Why did God allow that to happen? Why would that happen to me? What did I do to deserve that? It impacts his life still to this day. As a result, he holds God at a distance and it just weighs on him constantly. I think sometimes you'll hear those kinds of, those kinds of questions, those, that kind of ache from women or, or, uh, or, or kids or whatever that have been physically or sexually abused in their past. Maybe even they've prayed. Maybe they were married to an alcoholic or a drug addict or something and they might have even prayed and prayed and prayed that God would protect them, but it happened again. And they're, they're just wrecked over it. They carry around this sort of despair on their lives, this spiritual baggage that keeps them at a distance from God and even from other people. I've heard it from kids that have watched their parents go through horrible divorces. I've, I've heard it from spouses when their partners have walked out the door and they start asking, doesn't God care? Where is God in the midst of this? I see so many people walking around with spiritual baggage like this. 
Maybe they've gone through some sort of horrible tragedy sometime. Maybe they've dealt, dealt with some painful disappointment in their lives and they've walked around for decades and lived in despair. They've been trapped by it. They see, can't seem to get past it. And that despair, that baggage keeps them from God. It robs them. It robs us of our joy and of the peace, the security, the life, the freedom, even the hope that we're intended to live in. It keeps us wondering if there's anybody out there that matters, anybody out there that cares, anybody out there that's really in control, anybody out there that really has our best interest in mind. We are on week number four of a series that we're doing here at Ignite called The Comeback. It's never too late and you're never too far. And today I want to talk about coming back from despair to hope because uh, so many people, so many of us really do walk around with this kind of baggage uh, in one way or another when God desires for us to be free. This series is really all about hope, right? It's the hope that God can turn around any life, that God can work in any situation, even if it's intended for evil, even if terrible things were done. It's anchored in the hope that God can take those things and turn it around and use it, really can use it for our good and for his glory. That God is able to bust in and rescue people no matter their past, no matter their situation, no matter their present reality. There is a God who seems to specialize in comebacks, who seems to specialize in taking dead things and raising them to life. And so we're taking a few weeks to kind of zero in on this whole topic of comebacks in our lives. And like I said, today I want us to talk about coming back from despair to hope. And we're going to learn about this from a psalm, one of the psalms. It's Psalm 77. We're going to try and look for some answers, look at some perspective, and even some help about how we can experience a spiritual comeback in our lives. My hope is that today as we kind of look into these things, as we open our hearts and our lives to God, is that he would do some healing in us and he would bring freedom and hope to us once again. If you've got your Bibles, why don't you open them up to Psalm 77. If not, you can follow along in the Ignite Church app. There's a notes section. It's got all the scriptures. You can follow along on the side screens as well. One of the things I love about the Psalms, and if you've read through them, I'm sure you've encountered this yourself, but I love how shockingly real they are. There is not much that is just, uh, you know, got lots of makeup and lipstick on it that looks real pretty. It's many of the Psalms are raw. They're real. It's real life kind of stuff that you see. These Psalms are actually a collection of prayers and sort of songs gathered by God's people over the course of about 2,000 to 2,500 years ago. I believe uh, one of the reasons of the Psalms are in the Bible is to really teach us how to express our raw, unedited disappointments, hurts, fears, and even confusion to God, what we do with those kinds of things. They're just real and raw, not the polite kinds of prayers that oftentimes you hear in church, but these are honest, gut-wrenching ones that we don't even dare pray when anybody else is around. I like the honesty in that because God doesn't want, you know, our tame, sanitized, dishonest, look good on the outside kinds of prayers. He wants us to pray authentically from the heart. And sometimes that involves even raising your voice or expressing things that might be shocking. There's, there's in fact, a, a type of psalm that's called Psalms of Lament. The lament is actually a word that means weeping. And uh, you recognize them when you read through the Psalms because these are the kind of uh, these are the kind of Psalms that when you get done reading it, you feel like somebody just got punched in the gut or somebody was standing outside a door, pounding and banging and just begging God to open it up. There's, like I said, it's just real, it's raw, it's unedited. That's that's a Psalm of lament for you. And I think Psalms of lament tell us how to talk to God 
when something has so completely broken your soul that you don't know if you can even possibly recover. That's a psalm of lament. They show us how to do that. They teach us how we can both love God and be utterly confused and even angry with God at the same time. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to look at today. Psalm 77 is written by a guy by the name of Asaph, a guy that's uh, maybe somebody like you. He's a person that has, has dealt with and experienced some extreme disappointment and despair in his life. And apparently he senses that God is not coming through the way he wants him to. God is sort of non-responsive. God is not recognizing his pain or he's not meeting the needs in his life the way he wants God to. We're just going to kind of walk through these, these first verses today. That's where we'll pick it up. Psalm 77 verses 1 through 3 starts out like this. The psalmist writes, I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God to, to, to God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands. It means literally, uh, he, this next part means, and literally, my soul would not be comforted, and my soul would not be comforted. I prayed and prayed and prayed, but my soul would not be comforted. I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated, and my spirit grew faint within me. Now, Asaph doesn't tell us really what he's in distress about, what disappointment it is that he's experiencing in life. It might have been a terrible loss. Maybe it was a life-threatening illness. It might have been the breakdown of a marriage. It might have been the betrayal of a friend. We don't, it might have been financial loss. We don't really know what it's about. All we know is that he's crushed under the weight of his disappointment, and it's torn him up on the inside. Verse 4 going on says this, says, you kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. He's saying here, I can't, what, what, you kind of get what he's saying? He said, I can't even sleep at night. I go to close my eyes at night, but I just lay there in bed. I stare at the ceiling all night long. And whose fault is he saying is it, it is? Huh? Whose fault is it? God's. He's saying, you're the one, right? You kept my eyes from closing. I can't sleep and it's your fault. You're not doing anything. You keep my eyes from closing. And he says, I was even too troubled to speak. I couldn't even give voice to it because of how much anguish my soul was in. I couldn't even speak. I couldn't even talk about it. Couldn't even put into words this disappointment in my soul. As a side note, I have to say, these are like classic depression sort of symptoms, aren't they? I lay awake at night. I can't sleep. My soul is in anguish so much that I can't even talk about it. I can't even express it. That's really interesting to me. But the psalmist begins, he kind of opens up here in this first section, verses one through four, and he, he, he says, boy, I, I'm, I'm being oppressed, I'm being challenged, There's, stuff is not going well in my life. And, and he starts out saying, I prayed, right? I prayed to the Lord. Evidently, Asaph is no spiritual rookie. He knows that if things are not going well in your life, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. He knows this, right? And so he's like, boy, I got down on my knees and I prayed and prayed and prayed. I couldn't sleep at night. So, so what I did is I lifted up my hands and I prayed unceasingly, right? I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I cried out to God. I poured out my soul to God, asking him to intervene, asking him to work. And apparently... Apparently at this moment, all heaven seems silent because you can hear it, the anguish, but you did nothing. <laughs> but you, you did, not, did not come through for me, God. When I was disappointed, I cried out to you. I cried out to you to hear me. But as we'll see in a minute, he gets a feeling that God has not come through. He felt like his prayers were just bouncing off the ceiling and coming back down. I wonder if any of us have ever felt that way before. 
Ever felt like you've cried out to God for something? Maybe you prayed that somebody would be healed that had a terminal illness and they weren't. You prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and they died. Ever had a way that, you know, maybe you were searching for a job or something and you were praying and praying, God, please, would you provide? Would you? And nothing. Maybe there's something going on in your marriage and you guys were at odds and you were praying and praying and praying and praying fervently. Maybe you had a child or a kid that was going way, wayward direction and you were praying so fervently. God, would you please, would you bring them back? Would you help them to see the errors of their ways? And for whatever reason, it seemed like God was silent, like he didn't come through. Have you ever felt like that when you're praying, like you were praying, but you're not so sure that God's listening? That's kind of what's happening here. Asaph prays, but doesn't sense God doing anything. He doesn't sense any answers to prayer, and it leads him to some haunting questions, some, some disturbing kind of questions about God, about where he was, about what he was doing. Listen to some of these questions. I'm going to backtrack to verse 3 and then kind of read through to verse 9. But it says this, I remembered you, God, and I groaned. I meditated. I was thinking about you and my life and the situations, but my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. I used to remember the joy and the life that I used to live before. And then it says this, will he never, will God never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all times? Is God a promise breaker? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in his anger withheld compassion? Any spiritual baggage there, you hear? He's saying, when I prayed, there was no answer. And I looked at my circumstances. I meditated on my situation. And I wondered, where's God? Right? Has he rejected me? Has he forgotten me? Is he good or not? Doesn't he care? Those are the real raw questions people who are utterly disappointed with God sometimes wrestle with again and again and again. So if you've ever asked those kinds of questions, just know that you are not the first person in history to wrestle with this. Asaph was asking these same questions, wrestling with these same things some 2,500 years ago. And it's questions that we still get asked every day today. One of my favorite authors is a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, uh, the 20th century. He was a famous author. He was a professor. He was a philosopher, all this kind of stuff. He's written the Narnia books. Some of you guys know him from that. But uh, he went through this season in his life. He was happily married to a woman named Joy and, uh, and went through this season where she was dealing with cancer. And he prayed and prayed and prayed. And, God, would you heal her? Would you take it away? Whatever. And she died. And he was wrecked. I mean, he was wrecked. And he uh, wrote a book about it and uh, talked to uh, the book. It was a big portion of his journals throughout that era. And it's called A Grief Observed. And it just kind of catalogs his emotion and his wrestling and actually... Um, he writes a book at the end of that season, at the end of that era, um, about joy again and the way that God brought joy again, even in the midst of suffering and kind of talked about that kind of stuff. But uh, this, is a, an art, this is a statement from one of his journal entries that I think just expresses the same kind of heart that Asaph is expressing, right? Like, where's God? And then Mr. Listen to this, C.S. Lewis. Meanwhile, he says, where is God? 
This is one of the most disquieting symptoms when you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as interruptions. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when the need is desperate, when all other hope, help is in vain. And what do you find? He says, a door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. You may as well turn away, he says. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. Do you hear that? It's the sound of a grieving husband asking the same questions that Asaph was asking 2,500 years ago. Why? Right? Where is God in the midst of this? This doesn't make sense to me. Why is there death? Why is, and at that moment, he doesn't want the theological truth behind it. He's just, he's grieving. His guts are getting poured out to God. He's saying, where are you? What's this all about? Have you abandoned me? Why didn't you come through? I'll tell you what, friends, and uh, I was thinking about it this morning. I think, I think I've been in full-time ministry for either 23 or 24 years. And uh, as I've walked with God and as I've walked with people um, over the years, I have to say, you know what my answer is to stuff like that? I mean, I think there's some theological foundations. We've talked about them before. We'll talk about them again. I think there's some truths, some things we can hang on to. But at its essence, you know what my answer is to questions like that, the why questions? I think more and more my answer has to be, and I'm getting more comfortable with saying it, I don't know. Right? Like, I, I just, I, it's maybe an unsatisfying answer, but I think it's reality. It's the answer all of us have to come to of, I don't know. I don't know why some people are endlessly unemployed. We've got friends that are some of the hardest workers, seriously, that, that uh, a good friend of mine in particular I'm thinking of, that tends to every few years she'll get laid off. She loves Jesus. She's high integrity. She works her tail off. She's a great leader. And for whatever reason, she keeps getting, she goes into an organization. She does great things. She's on the rise and they'll experience financial hardship or whatever. She loses her job. She spent most of her adult life unemployed. Do I have an answer for that? No, I don't, I don't know. Why is it that there are some kids, boys and girls, that the very people that should be protecting them end up violate, violating them? Why? I don't, think there's an, I don't think there's a satisfying answer to that. I think the, the answer is I don't know. I don't know why that is. I don't know why six-year-old kids can get leukemia. I don't know why God gave you the parents that he did or didn't give you the parents that you, that you needed or whatever. I, I, I don't know. It seems like the older I get and the longer I follow Jesus, the greater sense I have this. There are so many things that I just don't know, I can't explain, and I don't understand. There's a word used actually in the New Testament 19 different times that's used to describe these sort of periods of God's silence, uh, this, these periods of confusion when nothing seems to make sense. You know what the word is? Mystery. <laughs> Mystery. The mystery refers to the stuff in life that we just can't figure out. In other words, the things that maybe have you most disappointed in your life, the things that might never be able, you might not ever be able to understand, and sometimes the things that we don't know if we'll ever be able to get over. It's referred to as the mystery. Now here's the thing, friends. I think all of us deal with disappointments, some more than others. All of us deal with ways that God has not come through for us in ways that we were expecting or hoping or longing for. Everybody deals with that stuff. Everybody has asked some of those same kinds of questions before. Why, God? Why would you allow this? But here's the thing. Not everybody stays there. 
Now, some people do. Some of us get completely sidetracked here. We focus on our issues. We get focused on our disappointments, on our baggage, and it festers, and we just sort of lock off. We end up locking out part of our souls, part of our hearts, and we harden up and vow that we will never again be disappointed by God. We'll never trust him again. He'll never be the same again. We distance from him and we allow ourselves and we will devote ourselves to not being disappointed like that again. And you can choose to do that. I can choose to do that. But when we do, we start withering in our souls. We start dying. And eventually that bitterness and anger and frustration begins leaking out on those around us, those that we probably care about the most. Remember we talked about this verse a couple of uh, weeks ago. I'm just gonna remind us again that Christ has come to bring about freedom and life in our souls, not the other way around. Galatians 5.1, we, we read a couple weeks ago, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. And he says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. For those of us that choose to sort of hold on to and focus in on our dis- in our despair. Whether we mean to or not, we are being burdened again by a yoke of slavery. We're carrying around baggage. And I think this morning, one of the reminders that we get from this passage is that God has something better. It's normal for us to experience despair. It's normal for us to ask these questions. It's normal for us to wrestle and wrestle friends, it's a bad destination. We don't want to stay there forever because Christ can bring about a turnaround in your life. Whether he will change the situation or not, he's he's going to orchestrate a comeback in your life if you let him. Let's go on. We'll learn some some of these lessons about what that looks like from Asaph. Uh, Let's jump to verse 12. Psalm 77 verses uh, 10 through 12. He says this, then, then I had this other, in, in all of these Psalms, you'll see this, the first part will be regret and like pouring out your guts, like asking the hard questions to God. And then there's always a, and then kind of part of the Psalm. This is the, and then kind of part of the Psalm. Okay. Verses 10 through 12. He says, and then I had this thought to this, I will appeal the years when the most high stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and I will meditate on all of your mighty deeds. Well, what's Asaph doing here? He's not actually praying, at least we don't think he is, but instead he's sort of refocusing on who God is. He's lifting his eyes, beginning to lift his soul and his spirit onto God. And I think this is a great place to begin when we are living in despair. Before we even pray, make sure you have a clear picture of who God is. Start to lift your eyes onto him. I I was thinking this morning, I was thinking, man, this is exactly why Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. He, He said, man, when you pray, when you come to the Father, when you come to pour out your heart to God, he said, I want you to pray something like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? means your name, your being, your essence is holy. It's perfect. It's completely other. I mean, you are in need of no one. You are complete and full and holy, whole even. He says, when you pray, why don't you start by lifting your eyes and remembering who it is that you're praying to? This is what Asaph is doing right here. He's beginning to lift his eyes. He's like, you know, I'm going I'm to remember 
all of the works of God. I'm going to remember not just this little microcosm where I am experiencing tremendous suffering, if you will, but I'm also going to remember that you were faithful back here and you were faithful back here and you worked in my life in a tremendous way right here and you transformed, you brought about a comeback in my life here and you set me free here. I'm going to remember the full picture, the big picture of who you are. When we pray before we meditate, before we remember who God is, so often it seems like our prayers are centered on ourselves, right? God, I'm suffering, and God, right, I, I want you to do this, and God, why aren't you doing this, and God, what? And, and it's so easy for our prayers to be focused on me, 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 me. Now, can I just pause and say, now that's where the psalmist starts, right? I, God wants us to pour out our heart to him. There's not a, this isn't something that he's against, but I'm just saying it, at, at some point, if we want to come back from despair to hope, there has to be a moment when we start lifting our eyes and remembering that there is a God that is bigger than our despair, that there is a God that is greater than any situation, a God who is able to redeem and restore and turn around the worst of situations in our lives. I just want you to see that happening here. Asaph begins the psalm by describing his pain. I cried out to the Lord, but he didn't hear me. I couldn't sleep, and it was all God's fault. It's about his pain. I'm so afflicted. I cry out, but nothing happens. And then he tells himself, he's sort of preaching to himself here. He says, but here's what I'm going to call to mind. Here's what I'm going to remember. He starts focusing back on the God who is greater than his problems, greater than his disappointments, greater than his pain. And he says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember the miracles of long ago. And in the following verses, he starts remembering some of the ways that God has been faithful to his people over the years. One of the main ones that he focuses on, and we see it in verse 19, is he's remembering when the people, when God set the people of Israel free. They had been living for 400 years as slaves in Egypt and God and the people started crying out to God, God, would you, would you free us? God, would you set us free and take us uh, to be your people and live in your land and, and follow you and all that kind of stuff? And God hears them and answers. He sets them free. He brings them to the Red Sea, right? You remember this? Some of us remember this story. He brings them to the Red Sea. He's about to, to do something great, give them their own land. And I'll read this first. I'm getting ahead of myself. Psalm 77, uh, verse 19, it says, uh, Your path led us through the sea, your way through the mighty waters. It's, listen to this. Though your footprints were not seen. So even though we couldn't see you at that moment, I'm remembering your goodness. I'm remembering the big picture, the whole story of what you've done. So God sets them free, brings them to the Red Sea, right, on, on their way to the promised land. And what happens? Pharaoh gets an idea. He's like, why am I letting my slaves go? This is not going to work out well. And so he sends the army after them and the people are trapped by the Red Sea. And this is what the psalmist is remembering here. He's like, they were trapped and we couldn't see God's footprints. It was, like, it was like we were stranded there. And they started, I mean, I bet there were some raw, unedited questions getting asked at that moment, don't you think? God, did you just set us free only to slaughter us by the Red Sea? Have you forgotten us? Are you... Are you not going to do something? Are you just going to let this happen? It would have been easy to conclude at that moment if, if for those people that God was absent, 
that he was not coming through, that he was not present, right? He was not there or that he didn't care about his people. But would that have been true? No. What's the rest of the story? God parts the sea, right? He parts the waters. The people walk through on dry ground. He wipes out his, their enemies, basically, and leads them towards the promised land. God was present even when it couldn't be seen. God was at work even when the people, had no, even when the people were freaking out. They had no idea what was going to happen. This reminds me of one of my favorite examples of this sort of idea that God is at work even when we can't see him. It reminds me of one of my favorite um, passages. I shared this sometime in the last year, so you have to forgive me. I just, it's such a graphic image. But so God actually parts the sea, takes him through, uh, puts him on this trajectory towards the promised land. Uh, and a, a journey that should have taken a month ended up taking how long? 40 years because of the people's lack of faith, because of their rebellion, uh, their waywardness. And, and, so, and so God takes them through this journey. Finally, it's time, right? There's uh, scholars estimate a million people standing along the bank of another body of water. It's not the Red Sea this time, but it's the Jordan River, right? And they're standing there, and the, the Jordan River is the only thing standing between the people and the land that God says, this is going to be your land. You were living as slaves, and you had no country, but now you're going to live in a land that I'm going to give you. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. It's going to be amazing. And this land, every time it gets described, this land, the promised land, it's exceedingly good, man. I've got good stuff in store for you, God says. And the only thing standing between you and that promise that I've given you is the is this uh, Jordan River. And that's not a big deal, right? Most of the, most of the time, uh, that a little river uh, is very easily to get across. There's lots of places you could cross it. It's a few feet deep. You'd wade across, be over to the other side. It would be nothing. But this is where it starts to get interesting, right? Because uh, we learn as we read through here, uh, it's Joshua 3, 15 through 16, we learn that actually the Jordan was at flood stage. How many have been down to the Peoria Riverfront when the river is at flood stage? Is it a little different than usual? I mean, we've got pictures, right, of, of the water level, like, up over the top of, like, trees and, I mean, all kinds. Of, it's crazy. It's, a lot of times it's a rushing rapids, right? There's a huge current. It's super deep. What used to be maybe a foot or two deep is now maybe six or eight or 10 or 12 foot deep in a, you know, rushing rapids. It would be easy to imagine, right? Like, can you imagine, like, being a mom with, like, a little two-year-old that you're kind of holding their hand, and you're coming up to this, and you're like, God, what are you doing, right? What do you mean? We're supposed to just step through the river, right? I mean, like, this, what are you nuts? It would be easy for elderly couples. Can you imagine coming up? Maybe they've got their, their walker or their wooden walker. So I don't know, whatever they've got, right? <laughs> their, their cart or whatever. And they're coming up to the edge of the banks and they're holding hands and they're looking at it and they're crying out going, God, this is impossible. Have you forgotten us? Have you brought us to this point once again, only to take, take our lives, only to kill us, only to wipe us out? It would be real easy to think that God had forgotten them, but it's not true. Listen to this. Joshua 3, 15 and 16 says this. It says, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. 
while the water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Now here's, here's what I want you to notice. The water stopped flowing, it, it says, way out of sight, right? It, the, 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 it stopped flowing upstream at a town called Adam, which is about 19 miles away from where the Israelites stood, far beyond what they could see. It was a miracle. God was at work. He had done something already that was amazing, but it was out of their eyesight. It was beyond what they could see. They didn't witness it with their own eyes. God performed a miracle upstream. Now, here's what I want you to understand about God and be reminded of this morning, even as we go back to Psalm 77. We need to remember that when we are going through a tough time, a time of disappointment, when we are processing events, when we're dealing with baggage from our past and we are wondering where God is and what he's up to, you and I need to remember this, that there is a God who is at work upstream in our lives, out of sight, beyond what we are able to see or experience or feel. He has been faithful. He has done the miraculous in the past He has shown us and proven his love to us again and again and again and again, nowhere nowhere more clearly than in the person of Jesus Christ, who the Bible says loves you so much that he died in your place and in mine for our sins. God came and died to show us just how much he loves us, to open up a way for us to, to be forgiven and to come back home to the Father. God thinks you're worth dying for. We have seen his love. We have seen his faithfulness. We have seen his commitment to us again and again and again and again. And today, maybe I don't know, today maybe you and I need to be reminded that even when we can't see it, even when we can't feel it or experience it, that there is a God work upstream in our lives. Even when we're going through a tough spot in our marriage, even when We've lost our job and the bills are coming in. We don't know what in the world's going on. Even in the midst of all kinds of uncertainty, even in the midst of kids that are doing whatever it is the kids do, right? Even in the midst of all kinds of things, there is a God who is is at work upstream in our lives. He promises to work for the good of those who love him. He promises and he never breaks a promise. Whether we feel it or not, it's true. There is a God who is at work upstream. Psalm 77 begins with a man that is uh, paralyzed by disappointment, distraught and angry with God. He's devastated, is asking these terrible kinds of questions. He's on the brink of a total collapse of his faith. But when he took himself out of the center of his prayers, when he begins to lift his eyes, to focus his eyes on the God who really is there, the God who rescues, the God who orchestrates comebacks in our lives, the God who is at work upstream, his perspective changes and he is able to trust once again. We go to verse 13, says this, your ways, O God, are holy. They're perfect What God is as great as our God. You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the people. 
Friends, you and I are limited, finite beings, and if we stay focused on our problems, on our disappointments, on our feelings, then we will get overwhelmed and consumed and stuck by our despair and disappointment. But the moment we begin to lift our soul, our eyes Godward, even just a little bit, when we put him in the middle and we start to focus on who he is, on his faithfulness, we start remembering a God that is bigger than us, bigger than our problems, a God who is at work upstream beyond what we can see, a God that is good and loving and powerful, a God that has been faithful in the past, was faithful to Asaph, was faithful to the Israelites at the Jordan River and the Red Sea, has been faithful to us in the person of Jesus Christ. He was faithful yesterday. He is faithful today. He is faithful tomorrow. When we begin to set our eyes on him, our hearts get lifted. And there's hope. There's hope again. There's freedom. And there's hope to start again. I'm not sure where you're at with God this morning. I'm not sure what's happening in your life. Maybe you're going through some gut-wrenching stuff today. Maybe these are just painful days for you. And you feel like... uh, just crying out to God is about all you can do. You feel like Asaph at the beginning where you're just like, my soul is so grieved. I, if I open my mouth, just the raw, unedited questions and junk of my life are gonna spill out. You know what I think God's word is to you? God's reminder is to you, come. If that's all you've got, then come and just be real with God. Bring it to him. Would you pray? Would you drop at his feet? Would you cry on his lap if that's all you can do? And just go to him. Even if you have questions, even if you're struggling, even if you're doubting, there is no better place to go. Would you go to him? I think starting there is the best starting place ever. Let's just not stay there. Because eventually, we're going to go to the next step. Would you you begin to lift your eyes up to him? Would you remember the God who is holy, who is perfect, who is faithful, who is loving, who is kind, who is good. He has been faithful in the past and he will be faithful to you in your present. Would you begin to lift your eyes? It's one of the reasons why I think God God tells us to come together on Sunday mornings. He gives us the Sabbath, a day set aside to the Lord because you and I, I need to be reminded and so do you. We need to remember and have other people sort of bolster our faith and sort of help us lift our eyes a little bit and set them back on Jesus. It's there that we can find hope. It's there we can find life. It's there that we can raise our hands together and say, there is nothing better. Jesus is better, right? He's better than anything else. So maybe that's you this morning. Maybe the living God is speaking to you and just saying, man, would you just lift up your eyes to me? Would you let me see you and minister to you? Would you let me show you who I am? Would you open up my word and begin to hope and trust in me once again. Would you come back home? Maybe you're here and you just need to be reminded. Maybe you're just desperately in need of hope. And maybe you need to hear and be reminded that there is a God who is at work upstream. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And so would you cry out to him? Would you look to him? Would you open up your heart and your life to him again? Maybe you're here today and you're new to all this God stuff and you're like, I don't know what we're, what, what we're doing here. It's pegging your weird meter a little bit. And maybe today, more than anything else, you just need to sort of crack the door of your heart to God and say, God, would you, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you, would, you, would you show me who you are? 
Would you draw me close? Would you, would you make yourself real to me? I want you and I need you. Show me how, show me how you want my life to be. Maybe that's what you need to, to cry out. I don't know where you're at today, friends. I'm not sure what's going on, but here's the reality. Here's the truth, right? No matter what's happening in our lives, no matter what despair, no matter what's on our shoulders, God invites us to come, to come to him, to come close, to come and pour out our hearts. He invites us to come and lift our eyes and remember and experience for ourselves his power and his presence. And he offers hope, remembering that he is at work even beyond what we can see. Let's close in prayer. God, that's, uh, we are thankful to be your kids. That's kind of our prayer this morning. God, draw us close to you. Open our eyes to see you and know you more. I pray that wherever we're at, God, that you would just, uh, just bring us close. If all we have, the only gas we have today is just to, to pray those raw, unedited prayers, then Lord, just draw us close and help us to meet with you and just minister to us in that place. If we've been stuck by the past, God, would you set us free today as we look to you, as we remember your goodness, your holiness, your faithfulness again and again. Don't leave us stuck, God, but set us free and move us forward. And God, for those that need hope, I pray that you would speak and minister today by your spirit, that you would put hope and new life into them again as you remind them that you are present and that you are at work upstream. We need you, God. We love you. We just open up our hearts. We open up our lives to you afresh this morning. I pray that you be us here. In Jesus' name.